morning he's going to sketch for us the subsequent history of the Scotistic tradition, but basically it's the tradition of the church as nuanced, as colored by the thought of, of Scotus, or the opinio minorum, or the opinio santi francisci. Uh, this is a very important subject uh, because, in fact, the, the uh, continuation of the thought of Scotus is not so much by way of written documents as it is by way of oral teaching from generation to generation. His disciples were uh, amazingly, amazingly consistent. You will not find in the history of the tradition different groups of Scotus, as you will find all sorts of different interpretations of St. Thomas. Even today, there must be a half a dozen versions of Thomism, and sometimes they are violently opposed to one, uh, one another. Whereas, down to the French Revolution, Revolution there is, uh, except on my uh, secondary point, there is an amazing unity, whether it's a conventual or an observant or a capuchin, but mainly conventual observance. Uh, but even when we deal with, uh, as it were, diocesan priests uh, and lay, uh, lay Catholics, the tradition is, uh, is a very united and uniform one. And uh, so we get a few highlights now. I let the, the Father Finnegan carry on from here. Thank you. Well, in the previous paper, I summarized the contribution of the blessed John Dun Scotus to the debate on the Immaculate Conception. <coughs> and the Bachelet, the author of the article on the Immaculate Conception in the Dictionnaire de Théologie Catholique, points out that the influence of Scotus was powerful and efficacious because of the manner in which he clarified and simplified the debate. And in consequence, as he says, the work of the following centuries consisted principally in putting into relief the fittingness of the privilege and in confirming its existence through the study and use of the positive elements of the dogma found wrapped up in the sacred scriptures and the ancient tradition. So it's this work of the following centuries that we're now concerned with. And during this period, the pious belief, as was often referred to, the pious belief in the Immaculate Conception gradually became accepted in theology and was finally declared by the blessed Pius IX as a dogma of the faith. We should never forget, by the way, that Pius IX has also beatified. It was referred to the blessed John Duns Scotus. Pius IX has been beatified too. In parallel, the celebration of the feast itself became universal, and its objects were specified as the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady, not her sanctification or even simply the event of her conception as the Mother of God. So after Scotus, years immediately afterwards, the, that's to say we're looking at the late 13th, early 14th century, the Dominicans, by and large, tended to follow the teaching of their great masters in rejecting the doctrine. Among the theologians themselves, the opinions were expressed generally with moderation. An important question was whether the Blessed Virgin could, said, could be said to have been redeemed if she had not contracted original sin. Some Dominicans, for example, Durandus of Saint-Pourçain, held that she could be said to have been redeemed but preserved from original sin. But it, it was not fitting for this to be so. So Durandus was saying, you could say that she was preserved from original sin rather than redeemed, but that was not fitting, non-decuit. So he, he denied the, um, the, the first part of the three steps um, of, of the argument with the Dominicans sometimes denying one or other of those three steps. As I mentioned in the previous paper, the argument decuit, potuit, ergoet, fecit, 
was not a simplistic devotional tour de force. I've heard theologians treat it in that way as a mistake. It was an outline of the structure of the argument that Scotus built in defense of the doctrine. There were some d exceptions among the Dominicans, <coughs> notably John Towler and John Bromial, argued from St. Thomas in favor of the doctrine. Dominicans discussed the contribution of St. Vincent Ferrer. He spoke in glowing terms of the privilege of Mary as possessing the highest degree of sanctification, but his expression doesn't allow us to count him among the supporters of the doctrine since he spoke of her sanctification in the same day and hour in which her body and soul were formed. So that expression is ambiguous on precisely the point at issue, whether Mary was sanctified at the same instant as her conception or immediately afterwards. Generally, in the first half of the 14th century, the doctrine received considerable opposition from theologians at Paris, including in their private teaching three um, Avignon popes, um, John XXII, Benedict XII, and Clement VI, not necessarily as pope, uh, and certainly not in um, magist magisterial definitive teaching, but um, in, in their private theological work. But during that same century, especially among the Franciscans, the Carmelites, and the Augustinians, the doctrine gradually gained ground, although in those orders too, not without some initial opposition. The Franciscans in general supported the doctrine. There were one or two exceptions among them to the general position of the order, for example, Bertrand de la Tour and Alvarez Pelagius. And for those who supported the doctrine, there were some significant developments. <coughs> Peter Aureolus moved from defending <coughs> the possibility and fittingness of the doctrine to asserting that it could be held without danger of error, provided there was no contrary decision from the church. He was the true son of the church. He awaited the church's decision. Following him, several other Franciscan doctors provided for the general and gradual acceptance of the pious belief until by the end of the 14th century, it had become the common teaching of the Franciscan order. Initially, the Carmelites expressed reservations about the doctrine, although with moderation. For example, Guy of Perpignan, this opinion would please me much on account of reverence of the Blessed Virgin, unless the authorities of the canons and the saints would oppose it. So it's undecided. In his earlier writing, John Bacon, another Carmelite, said that the doctrine went beyond the boundaries of proper devotion to Our Lady and was too adulatory. But later, he changed his mind on the question, and after him, the doctrine also became common teaching among the Carmelites. A similar process happened in the case of the Augustinians. A major influence here was Thomas of Strasbourg, who taught the doctrine at Paris and later became prior general of the order, following which his opinion became decisive. So the, the moderation which characterized the opposition against the doctrine in the first half of the 14th century gave way to a more aggressive approach in the later years of the century which were marked by a significant controversy which had important consequences for the acceptance of the doctrine. As we'll see, this is a, a leitmotif going through um, these centuries, that when there was significant opposition to the doctrine, the ultimate result in the providence of God, and presumably through the prayers of Our Lady, was that the acceptance of the doctrine became stronger as a result. That happened several times. So in June 1378, John of Monzon proposed a number of theses at Paris attacking the doctrine as heretical, among these were the following. He said, It is expressly against the faith to say that the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, did not contract original sin. And then, It is more expressly against sacred scripture to say that the Blessed Virgin was not conceived in original sin. 
than to say that she was also at the same time both blessed and on earth, simul beatricem et viatorem, from the instant of her conception and sanctification. For he claimed authority from St. Thomas for his view that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was heretical. At Paris, the theologians had been given the liberty to hold either view, provided that they showed respect for the pious belief in the Immaculate Conception. John of Monzon, obviously, here is not um, showing the required respect for this pious belief, so after his theses were examined, they were declared by the Faculty of Theology to be false, scandalous, presumptuously affirmed, and offensive to pious ears. That's always the, when I teach students the, the different theological notes, that's always the one they laugh at. It's offensive to pious ears. But it, it's an important theological note. If, you, if there is a pious belief which is held by many of the faithful as part of their faith and devotion, for something to be offensive to pious ears is actually quite, in, quite an important point. So um, his, his teaching was certainly offensive to pious ears. And he was required to retract these opinions. And when they, the theologians made this judgment, they didn't affirm either theological opinion it was the rashness and offensive character of John of Monzon's theses that were the focus of condemnation. And as happens, of course, he appealed to the Archbishop of Paris, who confirmed the condemnation, forbade anyone to hold or teach the propositions under pain of excommunication. So he appealed again to the papal court at Avignon, but during the course of the appeal, he realized he was unlikely to succeed, so he fled to Aragon and changed to the Roman obedience, probably during this time of the Great Schism, of course. At Paris, the result of the controversy was to give greater impetus to the already growing support for the doctrine as theologians vied with each other to defend it. And that's a phenomenon, as I said, we see repeated in subsequent centuries. As the doctrine was attacked, those who defended it advanced in the skill and depth of their presentation of the doctrine. An important event in this growth was the Sermon of Gerson in 1401 on the theme Tota Pulcra Es Amica Mea, in which he gave a powerful devotional exposition of the doctrine, which influenced later writers on the theme, notably Bossuet. At Aragon, so John of Monzon's now gone over to the Roman obedience, gone to Aragon, and he had the support of the inquisitor Emmerich, who was vigorously opposed to Raymond Lull, so he got himself involved in another argument over there. One of the propositions of Lull that uh, Emmerich wanted to condemn as heretical was his acceptance of the Immaculate Conception. And the theologians who defended Lull were, were very greatly helped by the declaration of King John of Aragon that he believed the doctrine. And after his death, a similar declaration from his successor, Martin I. And at the same time, the Franciscans argued vigorously and convincingly in favor of the doctrine. The extreme opposition only helped to further theological writing in favor of the Immaculate Conception. <coughs> During the 14th century, the growth in acceptance of the doctrine by theologians was paralleled by growth in devotion to the Immaculate Conception and the celebration of the feast. During the 14th century, the feast was introduced into the Carmelite, Carthusian, and Servite calendars, among others, and indeed into the Dominican calendar towards the end of the century, both the Roman and Avignonese obediences. In London, at a council under Archbishop Mepham, the feast was made obligatory for the ecclesiastical province of Canterbury in 1328, and the province of York followed soon after. And throughout Europe, in documents of the councils, the local councils of the period, and in contemporaneous breviaries, which are a good source always for um, texts on the liturgy, 
there's evidence that the feast was becoming universal. Before the 14th century, a liturgical argument against the feast was that it was not celebrated at the pontifical court. And it's thought that it was introduced to the pontifical court at Avignon, having been celebrated during the temporary um, stay of the court at Anagni towards the end of the 13th century. And in the course of the controversy during the next century, it was made clear that although the pontifical court didn't celebrate the feast, it permitted the celebration widely elsewhere and did not condemn it. And later in the century, it became a more fixed part of the calendar of the pontifical court itself. It's important to realize at this time the feast was celebrated both by those who accepted the Immaculate Conception and by those who opposed it. So for the, sorry, let's put for the former group, for the latter group, um, those who opposed the celebration, it was considered to celebrate the sanctification of Mary after her conception. So those who opposed the doctrine, it was about the sanctification of Mary after she had been conceived, but obviously those who believed in the doctrine, the feast was the celebration on the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So there's a Dominican um, breviary of the period, one of the antiphons for the feast, which is headed, Sanctification of the Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We've got Fusca fit conceptione Maria sedgitius ex divina sanctione formosa fit plenius. Mary was made dark by her conception, but speedily, very quickly, by divine decree, she was made fully more beautiful. So there's a poetic expression of the denial of the Immaculate Conception. She was conceived in original sin, but very quickly she was made more beautiful, she was sanctified. During the 14th century, various liturgical texts developed, increasingly giving weight to the Immaculate position, though sometimes being left ambiguous, allowing the pious belief but <coughs> giving room for a contrary theological position. Interesting case is the Carthusians. In the general chapter of 1333, the prior of Louvigny was given permission to celebrate the feast of the conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary in place of the feast of the sanctification. A few years later, perhaps in deference to the great Carthusian theologian Ludolf of Saxony, who didn't accept the doctrine, the feast was spoken of as the sanctification, but that was short-lived, and within a few further years, the feast of the conception became universal within the order. It was always a big um, point whether you talked about the feast of the sanctification or the feast of the conception. And there's a, a 14th century Carmelite missal at the Ambrosiana in Milan, which contains as an insertion at the end of the book. In other words, it's not bound up with the pages, rather like when the Pope introduced a new feast. If you look in old missals or breviaries, you often have insertions for you know, the feast of Pope Pius X or you know, some new feast that the Church has introduced. So uh, as an insertion at the end of the book, there's a Mass for the Immaculate Conception with the prayer, Deus qui per Immaculatam nimis virginis Mariae Conceptionem dignum filio tuo habitaculum preparasti, very similar to the prayer we have today. Concede quesimus sicutex morte eustem filii tui, previsa eam ab omni labe preservasti, itanos quoque mundos eus intercessione ad te pervenire concedas. So verbally, literally almost the same as the prayer that we have today. And it illustrates the liturgical development that went side by side with the acceptance of the doctrine. I think it's important to note that the liturgical development was an organic one. It grew slowly and tentatively together with theological understanding and popular devotion. The importance given to the pious belief of the faithful 
was probably as much an influence on the development of liturgical texts as the technical discussion of theologians, although both were important, that both had a contribution to the development of the liturgy. A notable event in the history of the doctrine is the Council of Baal, um, begun in 1431. The Carmelite John of Segovia and the Dominican John of Torquemada published opposing works concerning the Immaculate Conception, the doctrine, and the feast. John of Segovia argued strongly for both the feast and the doctrine, drawing evidence from various sources. His work has been faulted for relying on the Scotus view of the Incarnation and for establishing a position that would not require Our Lady to be redeemed. Regarding the feast, he argued from its observance at the Pontifical Court. The point there about the Scotus view of the Incarnation was that um, in many of the arguments for the, for the feast day in controversial circles, it was important um, not to claim too much. Obviously, as we know, Father Fellner has pointed out, the two are intimately connected. But in making an argument against the opponents, the Scotus generally didn't argue from the primacy of the Incarnation, but tried to knock down the opponent's arguments against its fittingness or possibility. John of Torquemada presented all the classical Thomist objections, arguing that all men except Christ were subject to original sin and that the feast should be that of the sanctification. Now, those bishops, very few actually left at Baal in 1438, declared in favor of the celebration of the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on the 8th of December and that the doctrine was pious, consonant with Catholic worship, Catholic faith, right reason, and holy scripture. They also stated that it was henceforth illicit to preach or teach the contrary. Now, the Council of Baal is interesting. It was called to counter abuses in the church, but it ended by challenging the authority of the Holy See and was effectively schismatic. Nevertheless, the affirmations concerning the Immaculate Conception, among its more happy acts, they remained influential in subsequent centuries. People regarded them as authoritative and cited them. And it, the Council of Baal can be regarded as the end, marking the end to the theological question of whether the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception could properly be held by Catholic theologians question which had answered resoundingly in the affirmative. So we got to the position where the church has accepted you may hold this doctrine, it's perfectly sound to hold it, and you may not in sermons call people heretics for not holding it. It's, you know, call, call people heretics for holding it. Sorry. Between the Council of Baal and the end of the 18th century, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was asserted with greater vigor the feast was celebrated more widely and eventually throughout the universal church, and the object of the feast was more precisely determined. The magisterium of the church intervened both to affirm the doctrine and to keep theological and devotional movements within the due limits of sound teaching. There are three highlights, really, in terms of magisterial teaching that can serve as a structure for looking at this period. Pope Sixtus IV, in 1477, gave official approval to the feast, in 1667, Alexander VII determined the object of the feast, and in 1708, Clement XI made the feast obligatory throughout the church. So after the Council of Baal, a number of leading figures promoted the doctrine. The decrees of the Council concerning the Immaculate Conception were enforced at the Provincial Council of Avignon in 1457, with the penalty of excommunication for advancing the contrary. And Queen Mary of Aragon, she was acting as regent for her husband, Alfonso V, who was away at war in Italy. In 1439, she confirmed the same decrees and reproved the excessive language of the Dominican theologians 
who had opposed the Immaculate Conception. In Germany, Gabriel Biel, a professor at Tübingen, affirmed the doctrine in a, a celebrated series of four sermons, but also in his commentary on the sentences. It's interesting, Father's point there about the oral tradition. At this time, the sermons were extremely important in reinforcing people's faith. Also, Gabriel Beals very sensibly defended St. Thomas from blame for not affirming the doctrine, pointing out that he hadn't had the benefit of a decision from a council or from the apostolic see. So Gabriel Beale offered in this way a reasonable approach for those who are devoted to St. Thomas but also wish to maintain the privilege of Our Lady. Today, perhaps we'd recognize more easily that an author can't be accused of negligence by the standards of a later age of theological development. Also, commenting on the sentences, Dennis the Carthusian said that the Council of Baal had put an end to discussion on the matter of Our Lady's Immaculate Conception. And so the Carthusian order as a whole withdrew from the position of compromise and accepted the doctrine in the new redaction of its statutes at the general chapter of 1470, stating significantly, Festum Gloriose Virginis Mariae quod solemniter celebratus sextus idus decembris Armado per totum ordinem celebrator sub nomine conceptionis, juxta determinationem ecclesiae, statuto non obstante de sanctificatione mentionem faciente. So from now on, in the Carthusian order, this, um, the feast of the glorious Virgin Mary, which is solemnly celebrated on the 8th of December, should throughout the order be celebrated under the name of the Conception, never mind about what had previously been said about the sanctification. In Italy, St. Lawrence Justinian promoted the doctrine in various ascetical works and in his Sermon on the Annunciation. And an even greater champion, of course, was St. Bernardine of Siena. He began with the text, Non dumerant abissi et ego iam conceptus eram, from Proverbs, famous passage there on wisdom, usually applied um, uh, allegorically to Our Lady and typologically. He argued for the eternal predestination of the Blessed Virgin as the mother of the incarnate word, and proceeded to argue for the Immaculate Conception under the traditional headings of its possibility, its fittingness, and its actuality. For the latter, for the, the actual fact of the Immaculate Conception, his work offered a stylized, uh, perhaps one might say artificial proof, from the seven seals of the Apocalypse. He cited seven saints, seven Franciscan doctors, seven miracles, seven Old Testament figures, and so on. Again, it was an oratorical device which was designed to, ex to excite devotion and support belief in the doctrine. It was effective in doing so. Also at this time, the emphasis of liturgical texts became more solidly immaculist. One example from the Carthusian house at Cologne, a nice little um, poem there, Sic tres pueros dominus protexit abigne, sic prosus martrem macula preservat ab omni, et sicut moisi rubus ardens non fuidustus, sit nec primorum vitsiis est lapsa ferentum. Beautiful. As the Lord protected the three boys from the fire, so even more he preserved his mother from every stain. And as the burning bush of Moses was not consumed, so nor did she fall by the vices of our first parents. At the Vatican Museum, as interesting, um, a Franciscan breviary is preserved, secundum consuetudinem Romane curiae, according to the custom of the Roman curiae, in which at the end of the Benedictus Antiphon for the Feast of the Immaculate Cons Conception notes, quae in generali concilio confirmata celebrato per multa ecclesiae loca. So it's referring, um, you know, 
which is confirmed in a general council and is celebrated through many places in the church, referring therefore to the Council of Baal. So the developments of that period serve to underline that although with historical hindsight we can judge the Council of Baal to have been schismatic, nevertheless its affirmation of the Immaculate Conception was received as authoritative and as a final decision, establishing that it was proper to believe in the Immaculate Conception. During the second half of the 15th century, the Dominican theologian Vincent Bandinelli wrote extensively against the doctrine, using the established arguments concerning the universality of sin and redemption. And he proposed the thesis that it was impious to hold that the Blessed Virgin was not conceived in original sin. Now, the reigning Pope Sixtus IV from the Della Rovere family was himself a Franciscan and organized, probably about 1475, a public disputation on the question. And afterwards, the Franciscan Leonard of Nogarole composed an office for the feast day which very clearly affirmed the doctrine. And in 1477, first of all, Pope Sixtus IV issued the constitution Cum Pre Celsa, where he affirmed that it was fitting even a duty that the faithful should attend masses and other divine offices to give praise and thanks to God for the wonderful conception of this Immaculate Virgin. Well, the controversialists never stopped, do they? So despite this, Vincent Bandinelli continued to write against the doctrine professing to defend the singular purity and prerogatives of Christ. So in 1483, Sixtus IV issued the constitution Grave Nimis, in which he referred to some preachers who asserted that those who held the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception sinned grievously, despite the fact that the Roman Church celebrated the feast and had approved an office for it, and he condemned such opinions as erroneous, but at the same time condemned those who asserted that the opponents of the doctrine were heretical or mortally sinful, since there had as yet been no decision of the Holy See requiring the doctrine to be held. So again, one of those Roman declarations, you neither can call each other heretics. But you know, it was important that he was, again, even more strongly reaffirming the, the, the fittingness of the feast and, of its, and, and a belief in the doctrine. So once again, in the providence of God, an intemperate opponent of the doctrine became an occasion for a step forward in the general acceptance of the doctrine. Now, Pope Sixtus IV didn't bind the Catholic faithful to believe the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, but forbade theologians from characterizing such belief as heretical or sinful, but such a declaration from the Holy See was bound to have effects beyond the letter of the decree. <coughs> so the 15th and 16th centuries were marked by a growing consensus among theologians regarding the teaching of the Immaculate Conception and the determination of the object of the feast day on the 8th of December. In addition, theologians began to raise the question of whether the doctrine could be declared to be of faith. Opposition to the doctrine continues to be promoted by some of the Dominicans. Pierre de Vincennes published a work resuming the arguments of Bandinelli. Two centuries later, the work was condemned. Bandinelli himself had now become the Master General of the Dominicans and in this role composed an office for the feast day in which the word conception was replaced by sanctification as the object of the celebration in the Invitatory Antiphon and the Collect. So the defenders of the privilege composed a number of works drawing upon the work of their predecessors and particularly contributed to the growth of general belief in the doctrine by producing works of a more popular character. By the early 16th century, the doctrine was taught at Paris, Oxford, Cambridge, Toulouse, and Bologna. And in Paris, students were required to take an oath 
um, to defend the Immaculate Conception. Interestingly, the Sorbonne, shortly after, condemned Martin Luther. Uh, it's surprising to us, given the Reformation, Luther um, personally believed the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Some people dispute, well, did he change his mind? Lutheran scholars claim that he, he continues to, to believe it. But he said that the contrary doctrine was not reproved, and it was that opinion that the Sorbonne condemned as false and impious against the honor of the Immaculate Virgin. They also condemned a, a similar statement of Erasmus. Important figure in Germany was John Trithemius, the abbot of Spanheim, who wrote a work in praise of Our Lady. And a Dominican, Vigan Wirth, responded by saying the doctrine was heretical. So a very intemperate expression by that stage. And the kindly abbot called upon him in a conciliatory way to moderate his opinions that he later retracted. And that and similar controversies in Germany had the effect of promoting the pious belief to the point that the universities of Cologne and Mainz followed the example of the Sorbonne and required an oath of students to defend the Immaculate Conception. Also, there were a number of saints during this period who promoted the doctrine. I think of, just as examples, St. Pascal Balan, St. Joseph of Capitino, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila. In 1621, the Franciscans took an oath to defend the privilege, and in 1645 took for their patron the Immaculate Virgin, conceived without sin. And the new congregations that were formed at the time of the Reformation, the Theotines, the Barnabites, the Jesuits, among others, universally adhered to the doctrine. The Jesuits, uh, in 1593, their, their um, rules on the choice of theological opinions stipulated that members of the society were bound to hold the doctrine, which is in these times more common of the Immaculate Conception. Interesting, by that stage, in these times, the more common doctrine. Among the Dominicans, it was taken up less enthusiastically in general, but in Italy, Ambrose Caterham became a, a champion of the pious belief. Uh, in 1532, he refuted the arguments of those of his order who had opposed it. In the following century, Thomas Campanella wrote defending it. His work um, marred perhaps by the partisan and scarcely credible assertion that the doctrine had its foundation in the writings of the Dominican school. There was a, a similar gradual movement among the Dominicans in France, but it was in Spain where the order moved most markedly in the direction of accepting the doctrine. In addition to writings in favor of the Immaculate Conception, the feast was observed with solemnity. In Andalusia, the feast was celebrated with a solemn octave, despite the season of Advent, and the principal bell of the house had the inscription, Maria Virgo ab omni peccato originali immunus fuit. In 1618, eight senior Dominicans from the province of Spain, including the provincial, petitioned Pope Paul V to enjoin the religious of the province to celebrate the feast according to the office used elsewhere in the church and to preach the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception clearly. <laughs> Obviously, we're talking about the Immaculate Conception, but there's something else has happened during this period, notably the Reformation, <laughs> its violent and disruptive aftermath. So again, in most territories where Protestantism held sway, devotion to Our Lady was swept away with the rest of the faith. England, particularly sad example, having been known for centuries as the dowry of Mary, the country saw a sustained attack on the visible marks of devotion to her. Perhaps one of the most brutal was the destruction of the statue of Our Lady at Wals of Walsingham at Chelsea under King Henry VIII. But it was under Elizabeth I that the destruction became more general. Um, the source for, for this, a wonderful book, um, stripping the, the Stripping of the Altars by Eamon Duffy, describes how it's extremely difficult to eradicate devotion to Our Lady in England and it wasn't enough just to ban these things from churches because what people did was to put them in their attic or 
bury them in the garden or put them out in the shed. So as soon as the restoration happened on Queen Mary, all the vestments and statues and rood screens all reappeared as if by magic. So under, under Queen Elizabeth, um, it was ordered, the commissioners went round and were ordered to physically destroy them. At the same time, that the territories in Europe that remained Catholic grew in their devotion to Our Lady and in their pious belief in the Immaculate Conception. It was a genuinely popular movement, supported enthusiastically by the people through dedications and tokens of affection, and by the pastors, especially as the reform of the clergy initiated by the Council of Trent began to take root. Remember that one of the biggest tasks of the Council of Trent was to reform the clergy. Um, it was a terrible state at the time of the Council, and the Council instituted that clergy should have some education. It's interesting that it, it, it couldn't agree to specify that clergy should be educated enough to be able to preach. Okay. It was kind of seen as that, that's setting the bar a little bit too high. Obviously, <laughs> later on, very quickly after the council, you know, the seminaries began to be founded. Clergy became very quickly much, yeah, much more suited to their, to their ministry. And within that milieu, the gro growth of the belief in the Immaculate Conception was something that became a part of... Um, generally of the secular clergy. A notable figure is Bosway, whose sermons and devotional works had such an impact for their holiness and sound doctrine. The great orator vigorously defended the doctrine and after being, becoming bishop used his authority to promote it, especially in the production of works intended for the catechesis of the faithful. The same was true in Germany with St. Peter Canisius and in Italy with St. Robert Bellarmin. They used the medium of the catechism to teach people about Our Lady's Immaculate Conception. And during this period, I think we can affirm that the sensus fidelium became a powerful element in the cause of the doctrine. Whatever may have been the theological disputes of the past, the ordinary faithful and their priests showed themselves eager not only to give a notional assent to the Immaculate Conception, but to fill this out with the real assent of mind and heart shown in popular devotions, prayers, and works of art. You know, the whole session on the works of art produced during this time. There were some excesses. One example was the belief that Mary was conceived at the moment that St. Joachim and St. Anne kissed one another. <laughs> Although there was never any serious theological support for those excesses, there were, you know, we have to remember, occasionally it's necessary to reprove those who went to excess in case, of course, the opponents of the doctrine should have further ground for their case. And the Reformation presented theologians with a new challenge to defend the doctrine against Protestant thought. One of the most brilliant counter-Reformation theologians to defend the doctrine was St. Robert Bellarmine. His controversies, his lectures given at the Roman College, were written to teach those who were going to leave Rome for Protestant countries, and they included a comprehensive defense of the Immaculate Conception. In England, it's, it's quite moving to think of um, St. Robert Bellarmine's teaching. It was the foundation for the re-evangelization of England undertaken by many of our martyrs. We think of their zeal and the way in which they debated wherever possible, we can remind ourselves that many of them drew their controversial skill from the lectures they heard from Bellarmine at the Roman College. Given the consensus that had grown regarding the truth of the doctrine, further theological questions arose. One of these was the degree of certainty to be accorded to the doctrine, indeed, whether it was the truth of the faith. And a, a famous um, contributor to this debate was the Jesuit Juan, Juan Maldonado, who took up the question coming to the conclusion that it was right piously to believe the doctrine and teach it, but it, it had the state of a private opinion, not a doctrine of the faith. So that was a position he set out. 
The university opposed Maldonatus and the dispute was taken to Rome. But of course, Pope Sixtus IV had said in Grande Nemis that it, you know, no decision had been reached as yet. So Maldonatus's position was juridically unassailable and he wasn't condemned, perhaps fair, fair, fair enough. But the next question there, therefore, was going to be, well, could it be made the subject of a dogmatic definition, thereby become a doctrine that had the status of a truth of the faith? And theologically, it's important for us to note here, there's a difference between the juridical status of a theological opinion and what we may in the future come to realize to be the truth. In the 17th century, it was wrong for a theologian to label another a heretic for denying a doctrine that hadn't yet been defined. But the definition of the doctrine doesn't mean that it suddenly becomes true, as though the Holy See were to be inventing um, doctrine, the way that the newspapers often speak about the papacy, that it's a sort of policy decision, rather like you know, the inheritance tax or something. The definition of a doctrine declares that it's revealed by God and therefore to be believed by all the faithful. What's uncertain at one time, namely whether Our Lady was immaculately conceived, can become certainly known through the development of the life of the church, aided by the grace of God. So theologians who opposed the idea that the doctrine could be an article of the faith argued there was insufficient evidence in the scriptures and the tradition of the fathers, pretty much arguing in the way Father spoke of earlier, a kind of um, positivistic approach. The idea that the doctrine could be a faith was supported by Suarez and Vasquez, among many others, all recognized that there needed to be evidence from the scriptures and the fathers of the church but they argued there need not be an explicit awareness of the doctrine as of faith, since there were examples in the history of the church of a doctrine being defined as of faith which had not necessarily been recognized as such previously. In fact, the general truth in the history of theology, it's difficult to prove from the writings of the fathers of the church that the sacrament of confirmation is numerically distinct from the sacrament of baptism, but it's certainly a doctrine of the faith taught by the Council of Trent. Another question was the question of the debitum peccati. That's the subject of the next lecture, so we needn't um, delay on that one. Question proposed by Cajetan uh, in relation to the universality of original sin. Another discussion which is important for us is that of the object of the feast. Before the discovery of the biology of human fertilization, theologians generally understood the process of generation as one in which the material body was first formed in some sense and the soul was infused sometime after become a cause celebre in America just in the last couple of weeks, uh, the speaker Nancy Pelosi making, um, trying to argue from that in favor of abortion. But the American bishops have responded very, very robustly, an excellent statement from the American Bishops' Conference, which I recommend to you on that question. So some theologians taught that the celebration of the feast referred to an event that took place sometime later, since the affirmation of the Immaculate Conception couldn't refer to an inanimate embryo as they thought of it. Bellarmine asserted that the principal object of the feast was not the Immaculate Conception, but the conception of the Mother of God. The principal object, not the, the only object. He also accepted that it was about the Immaculate Conception as well. Well, of course, now that question's disappeared because of um, discoveries in human biology. We know that there is no inanimate stage in human embryonic development. Everything that's necessary for later development is already in place at the moment that the single-celled embryo first comes into being through the fertilization of the ovum by the sperm. There are no grounds for positing any subsequent animation. The wonderful pictures that we now have of the baby in the womb show us that the first kick that the mother feels isn't the beginning of life at animation, but the movement of an already advanced human baby who can respond to stimuli. 
So the problem over the delay between conception and animation, which vexed theologians, has disappeared. The moment of the conception of Our Lady is a single unified event at which both her material body begins to exist in the form of an embryo and her spiritual soul, the form of the body, is directly created so that at the same instant she was created as a unified human person, in her case uniquely an immaculate person, free from the stain of original sin that's contracted by every other human person. Now, how are we for time, Father? We've got two minutes. Two minutes, right so. Well, in two minutes, we'll skip over the Council of Trent, which dealt with original sin, of course, and mentioned in that that it didn't intend to apply that teaching to our Blessed Lady. In... 1644, there's, a well, there's also the condemnation of Bias, condemned his opinion that um, the Blessed Virgin died because of sin contracted from Adam. Now, the Holy Office in 1644 issued an instruction stating that the title Immaculate Conception should not be attributed to the Blessed Virgin, but that one should speak of the conception of the Immaculate Virgin. But on his accession, Pope Alexander VII told the Master of the Apostolic Palace, those who wish to use the title Immaculate Conception should be left in peace. And Alexander VII also issued the bull Solicitudo Omnium Ecclesiarum, which was a significant step towards the acceptance of the doctrine. The bull recalled the history and growth of the doctrine and devotion placed on the index books which called either into question. So from this time you've got general acceptance of the doctrine, just to kind of outline the main lines. You can read the rest later if you want. The, um, the doctrine was commonly taught. The meaning of the feast was clearly established. It was the immaculate conception of Our Lady rather than her subsequent sanctification. The exception was the Jansenists, who again had this, this artificial attempt to return to the teaching of the Fathers, again a positivistic um, attempt to return to some reconstructed primitive church. And it included a rejection of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And the spiritual writers who opposed the Jansenists on the Blessed Sacrament and on Our Lady, um, they also, um, it was another opportunity for growth and development in spiritual teaching. So the beautiful books produced by the spiritual writers of that period, which are great classics for us, the works of Father Gru, um, if you think of um, the other Jesuit writers of the period, and de Cossard and so on. Um, St. John Erd and all, all of the other great proponents of devotion to the Blessed Sacrament and devotion to Our Lady, <coughs> in a sense, um, had a springboard for the Jan Jansenists. They had to oppose this because of its destruction the of the faith of the people. 1708 was a significant triumph. Pope Clement IX extended the feast to the Universal Church. And, of course, um, if you like, the final, final triumph before the dogma was the revelations of our Blessed Lady to St. Catherine Labouré to make a medal that was stamped with the legend, O Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee, immediately followed up by so many signs of divine favor. And it was incredible the number of miracles that happened immediately as a result of the miraculous medal that it became known as, as just that in devotional shorthand, the miraculous medal. So then we have the, the immediate build-up before the definition. Um, and the errors against the doctrine at this time were marked as well by modernism. Um, you know, the, the theologians becoming too impressed with the Enlightenment, as some still are today. But so the errors against the Immaculate Conception took on a more sweeping character. And I think it's right to say that the bull, um, and Father, Father Fellner has also made this point um, more extensively, 
that the bull offers a, a significant, a, a magnificent synthesis of the teaching of the scriptures, the fathers of the church, and the great theologians. And in the precision of the development, it gives a precise and exact summary of what the church believes concerning Our Lady's Immaculate Conception. And it's quite right to see the bull as the ultimate vindication of the position for which the blessed John Duns Scotus had argued nearly 600 years before. And of course, four years afterwards, there's the epilogue um, where Our Lady contradicts the Holy Office. <laughs> and the Holy Office said that you couldn't call Mary the Immaculate Conception, um, the, one, the one thing which convinced uh, Monsignor Peramal in Lourdes that the visions to St. Bernadette were genuine was when she said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Thank you.